You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Our Bible reading is Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. The coming of the kingdom of God. Once some being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day of Noah, the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day of Lot The day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Matt's going to uh, open the word of God to us and preach to us now. Thanks, Eric. And hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, Particularly warm welcome to you if you are new or this is your very first time. It's great to have you with us. And you're joining us at the very beginning of a brand new series looking at the subject of the kingdom of God. Just before we dive into that passage, why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we come here today appreciating that our week has been full, no doubt, of moments of challenge, moments that have made us feel overwhelmed, moments where we were concerned that we didn't know what to do, Father, many of us go into a brand new week where we are uncertain about how to move forward. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. As we open this passage now, we pray that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice clearly. We pray that none of us, by the power of your spirit, would leave this place unchanged. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've just done a short series on on vision. What's the vision here at City Church Manchester? And we looked at three things. One, we want to be a church that grows, grows in depth, grows in uh, spiritual maturity, but also grows in size. We want more people to come to know Jesus. Uh, Number two, we said we want to be a church that trains, that equips, that resources people. 
And then thirdly, we also said we wanted to be a church that gives, gives generously people and resources to plant churches, resource churches in Manchester, the Northwest, and beyond. And so we've done that three-week series, and you may have listened to all or part of that, and some of you will have thought to yourselves, brilliant, really exciting. I think that's a great vision for a church to be involved in. But others of you may well have been scratching your heads and thinking to yourself, well, isn't that a little bit full on? You know, you might be thinking to yourself, look, I'm not looking for strawberries and cream on the vicarage lawn, but I'm certainly not looking for a church that has more expectations of me than my job. Well, you know, not so long ago in a national newspaper, uh, researchers claimed that the average person has actually changed what they want to achieve in life. It's moved from being all about finding, you know, that dream, moment, job, person, place to live, but it's shifted to the quest for happiness. Now, that may sound very sensible, very reasonable, but actually it's not that people have shifted to the goal of finding moments of happiness in their life. No, 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 the goal has become to find a place of permanent, unfading happiness all the time, never ceasing. And if that is true, if that is true, we're all looking for an unbroken lifetime of happiness. Well, actually, that's where church becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because it's all very well having a very clear vision, but what if that vision leads to discomfort or pain or even sacrifice? I'm not going to point the finger at us because I feel exactly the same way. I, I want a life where I wake up in the morning and don't feel the gnawing tug of anxiety in my stomach. I want a type of Christian faith where non-Christians around me say, oh, you're a Christian, great choice, very sensible. I'd love that. I'd love a Christian faith where when I speak to the parents at school and tell them I'm a pastor, that they don't suddenly look at me like I'm part of the crazy brigade or I'm the fun police. It's the type of Christian faith that I want. And yet what we're going to learn from this new series on the kingdom of God is that Jesus says that we should have very, very different expectations of what it means to be an authentic Christian in 21st century Manchester. In fact, I think this series is going to tell us this, that perhaps the problem at City Church Manchester isn't that we take things too seriously but perhaps we just don't take them seriously enough. I've got two points for you this afternoon, and the first one's this. Are you waiting for the right kingdom? Are you waiting for the right kingdom? Uh, look at me at verses 20 to 21. First, look at verse 20 in your Bibles. Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, and you know, the Pharisees were the religious ruling elite. They're asked, Jesus, when will God's kingdom come? And we tend not to think about kingdoms, do we? It's not something that we talk about in everyday life. But it refers, the word kingdom refers to a place that is governed by a particular person who has authority. 
And at the time that Luke, Dr. Luke, was writing this gospel, that is an account of Jesus' life, at the time that he was writing, the Jews were a conquered people. The Romans had swept through Judea, and they had brought what was called the Pax Romana. It was known as the Peace of Rome, which is basically a situation where if you did what the Romans say, you would live, and if you didn't, you would die. That's what the Romans said their kingdom was about. That's what the Pax Romana was all about. And the Pharisees were this group of Jews who longed for a time when God would kick out the oppressors and would install a homegrown king of Israel to rule the country once again, just like the Old Testament scriptures promised one day would happen. Which is why in our passage, the Pharisees turn to Jesus and say, well, when will the kingdom of God happen? When will the kingdom come? And that sounds a fair question, right? But actually, it was loaded with assumptions and all sorts of expectations. Because in the ancient Near East, when a new kingdom was ushered in, when a new king arrived... Well, actually, it triggered something like a procession. You know, the king or new emperor would arrive in the place that was conquered, and the processions that followed were absolutely legendary. Let me give you a sense. When Rome conquered a new land and it became part of the kingdom of the Roman Empire, in the capital city or the major town, they would have this huge parade that the soldiers would all march in, wreathed in triumph. You would have all of the prisoners in chains. Even the teachers and university lecturers of the conquered place would be brought in in chains. Can you believe that? They would even have like carnival floats coming through the procession with parts of the landscape that had now been conquered and become part of the Roman Empire. It was absolutely huge. It was absolutely massive. It was a massive, great, ginormous party. And so you can imagine the excitement and the chatter that kept the Pharisees going when they experienced the hardship from the Roman soldiers. What kept them enthusiastic and optimistic as they were going through all the hardship of their religious practices They believed that one day, one day, there would be a moment when the big procession, the great party, would be for them. It would be their king right through the middle of Jerusalem. And so they turn to Jesus in our passage, in Luke 17, and they say to Jesus, when will that day come? When will that kingdom arrive? Come on, Jesus, let's get a date in the diary. And Jesus' response in verse 21, look with me at verse 21, because it is an absolute shocker. Jesus says this. It's already here. It's already here. It's like saying to someone who's in the process of buying a burglar alarm, look, it's too late, the intruders are already in your kitchen. You see, there are two phases to God's kingdom, two phases. There is the now and the not yet. 
If you're thinking back to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 is a key time because in verses 18 to 20, Jesus is in the synagogue and he reads a part of uh, the book of Isaiah, a prophecy that describes what the new king will do when he arrives in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and he describes all the blessing and benefits that the Israelites can expect when the new promised king finally arrives and what Jesus does is he finishes reading that prophecy, he rolls it up, he sits down, and he turns to everyone in the synagogue and he says, hey, that's all about me, and I'm here now. Because Jesus was absolutely convinced. Where he is, the kingdom has started. Where I am, that's where the kingdom finds its rule. It's an absolute mic drop moment for Jesus in Luke 4. And he's really clear that wherever God is considered to be worthy of adoration, worthy of authority over a person's life, wherever someone bows to the knee to Jesus and says, you are the king of my life, that is where the kingdom of God is established. That is where the kingdom of God is experienced. And I don't want you to miss how shocking this would have been to the Pharisees who were listening. They were expecting a party. They were expecting a ceremony the size of the Olympic opening ceremony. They were expecting something to be huge. And yet the application is quite stark. If you are still waiting for God to announce the new kingdom with a spectacular show of force, then you are waiting for the wrong kingdom. That's Jesus' shocking point. And let, let me bring this home a little bit. If you are waiting for the spectacular, the spectacular answer to prayer, the spectacular miracle cure, the spectacular marriage of your dreams, or the ideal job to land on your will land in the right at the center of your life with fireworks, explosions, excitement. And if you're saying to yourself, actually, unless I get that spectacular arrival, unless I get those spectacular answers to prayers, well, then I am, I am not going to be, I'm not going to be the risk-taking, faithful Christian that I always thought I could become. Instead, until I get that spectacular procession of the king, well, I'm just going to sit on my hands. I'm going to keep my head down, and I'm just going to drift through life. Well, look, if, if that's you, well, then there's a problem because you're waiting for the wrong kingdom, and it's not a kingdom that you'll find promised in the Bible. You see, the now of the kingdom of God is unspectacular. It is normal, and yet it's wonderful. How can unspectacular and normal be wonderful? Well, let me put it like this. If you are a believer and Jesus is your king, you get to speak to the creator of the universe about the deepest longings of your heart with your pajamas on over the first coffee of the morning. That's one of the privileges. That is one of the privileges of being part of the kingdom of God. 
Or let me put it like this. Being a citizen of the kingdom of God right now means that you get the Holy Spirit to live within you so that when you go to that hospital appointment, which you are terrified about, you walk in there not alone, but walking right beside you is the very creator of the universe. Or let me put it like this, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God right now, your days, whatever you do, whether it's studying or working or or supporting at home or elsewhere, whatever you do, your day isn't waiting for nothing. Your day is deliberately being sensitive to seeing the goodness of God in all of the small things and small moments of life and giving thanks and praise to him when you see them because that is the mark of a heavenly father who loves you deeply and gives you good gifts, however small, each day for you to enjoy. Let me, um, let me try and illustrate it. There was um, uh, a moment when... Uh, a few years ago, I went to Euro Disney with the family. And at Euro Disney, if you've ever been, uh, they have these great processions. They're amazing processions. All of the Disney characters are on huge floats towering above you. The band is playing. It's a full-on party. It's a highlight of anyone's experience at Euro Disney. It's incredible. And so we were there. We were enjoying the parade. The procession was everything that you could have imagined. And right in front of us was a little boy young little boy, he was loving it, he was really enjoying the parade, really, you know, getting into the whole of the procession, just loving it. And then, and then he sees his absolute hero on a float, you know, 20 foot high coming towards him, and it's Aladdin. It's Aladdin, and he loves Aladdin. And this little boy sees Aladdin, and he starts to shout, he's waving his arms, trying to attract Aladdin's attention. The float comes a little bit closer, ah, and he get, he's getting more and more worked up, more and more excited, and he's going, Aladdin, Aladdin. His dream is clearly for Aladdin, his hero, to look down and say, hey, son, come up here and come be with me up on this massive float. He's longing for that moment, and there's Aladdin right there in front of him, and he is absolutely beside himself, screaming and shouting, trying to get Aladdin's attention just for that moment that his hero might see him and notice him and be with him. And then the float just drives by and Aladdin is just waving and enjoying it. Doesn't even notice the kid. Doesn't even notice the disappointment. You see, too many of us, too many of us are just like that boy. We're trying to attract the attention of God through shouting louder and louder so that we might get his attention, so that he might come close to us. We're trying to go louder and louder through perhaps doing more impressive things, perhaps achievement in life and career, perhaps it's through better and better behavior, perhaps it's through lashing ourselves with more and more guilt, also that God might see us and notice us and come close to us. But that is not, that is not how the kingdom of God works, because it's actually far, far more wonderful than that. Are you waiting for the spectacular procession to kickstart your spiritual life, 
when you could be enjoying the intimacy of God right now. Think of it like this. Right now, if you're a believer, just by uttering under your breath as you sit on these seats an imperfect prayer, God will be closer to you than the friend sitting next to you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that remarkable intimacy that we have? Because the kingdom is here now with us. The nearness of the kingdom of God is a wonderful thing, City Church. Treasure it. Absolutely treasure it. Well, come with me to our our second and, and final point, and it's this. Are you waiting for the kingdom in the right way? Are you waiting for the kingdom in the right way? We're going to be looking particularly at verses 22 to 37. There's a lot in it, so we're going to unpack it quite quickly. But you'll remember I said there are two parts to the kingdom, or two aspects. There's the now, but there's also the not yet, the future part of the kingdom. And Jesus, in the second part of our passage, he turns his attention to the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. That is the future moment when Jesus Christ himself will return in person and bring judgment to those who are against him and rescue to those, that is, take them to the new creation, those who have put their trust in him. That is the future aspect of the kingdom. And the headline concern that Jesus has is this. Be vigilant about how you wait for that moment. Be vigilant about how you wait for that moment. Look with me at verses 22 to 23 in your Bibles. He says be vigilant, not because there's a danger that somehow you'll miss his coming. No, Jesus' point is the second coming will be as subtle as lightning that splits the skies across the planet. There's no danger of missing it. That's not the point. Jesus warns his disciples to be vigilant about how they wait for that moment for two very specific reasons. Let me give you the first. It's this. It will be so sudden, so choose now. It will be sudden, so choose now. In verses 26 to 28, Jesus uses two illustrations from history. Firstly, he uses the illustration of Noah and the flood, an event so devastating that most ancient Near Eastern cultures have some form of description about the flood happening. And then he uses the um, illustration of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin cities, which archaeologists have looked into and said, yes, there seems to be evidence that it was quick, sudden, and absolutely devastating. Because Jesus wants to underscore that the day that he suddenly returns will be an absolutely normal day. It will be an absolutely normal day. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus paints a picture of the moment of his return. Do you see in those verses? Uh, Let me read verse 34 and 5 to you. It says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. In other words... Moments before Jesus returns and the kingdom of God finally arrives in all of its fullness and everyone recognizes Jesus for who he is, Jesus wants you to know the world will be normal. 
it will be happening on a very boring day. Let me put it like this. On the day that Jesus returns, there will be two people at the school gate, both picking cornflakes from their children's hair and trying to scrub off last night's dinner from their jumper. And then all of a sudden, one will meet Jesus as a friend and the other will meet Jesus as a judge. On the day that Jesus comes back, there will be two people at the self-service counters at a supermarket. You know, the ones where you put it through yourself. And there'll be two people who are desperately trying to attract the attention of the assistant who's never looking and the light's flashing. We've all been there. And then all of a sudden, one will meet Jesus as friend and the other will meet Jesus as a judge. On the day that Jesus comes back, there will be two people at a local coffee shop, both trying to look at the calorie count on that particular chocolate cake underneath the counter, deciding on whether or not they should get it. And then one will meet Jesus as a friend, and the other as a judge. Jesus really wants to underscore it is going to be an absolutely normal day when he comes back. And when he comes back, it will be sudden and it will be final. Which means, and here's the key application, there will not be extra time. There will not be a moment where you can see Jesus and you can weigh up, oh, I've just seen Jesus. Maybe now is a good time for me to readdress what I think about the gospel. There will not be that. There will not be that. The preparation for Jesus' return is now. It is today. That's how long you've got to answer that critical question of life. How will you respond to Jesus? It's the most important question of your entire life, and it cannot be deferred or delayed or paused because we do not know when he will return, but it will be sudden and it will be final. As I was um, having um, lunch today at uh, McDonald's, uh, I was reflecting that my family has a horrendous history of heart disease and diabetes. I was reflecting on that as I took a massive gulp of Coke. And I was reflecting to myself that a sensible man uh, who's reached his, you know, early 40s should really do something about that, maybe make some lifestyle changes as I stuff some chips into my face. But of course, I said to myself, well, hey, when the first signs of the heart attack actually happen, that's when I'll change up. That's when I'll start eating clean. But you would say to me, surely that's not sensible. Surely you would say to me, well, that's banking on an awful lot of assumptions. Well, that is nothing compared to saying, actually, I'll make a decision for Jesus when I actually see him. That is not a choice that you have to make. If you're not yet a Christian, your future self, your future self would send you a message today, this afternoon, and say, for the love of all that's good, choose Christ now before it's too late. Well, come with me to our our second feature 
that Jesus encourages us to think about when we want to think about waiting well for that moment. And it's this, it will be worth it to go all in. It will be worth it to go all in. Now, I, um, I love quirky icebreaker questions. Those of you who have ever been in a small group with me or a seminar will know that. I love the question. Oh, you know, give me a sense of your week by telling me what color it would be. You know, it's great. It's classic, isn't it? I love that one. Or um, if you had to describe your entire life as a sitcom, what sitcom would you choose? That's a good one, isn't it? It makes you think. Now, this one, this doesn't actually belong to me, but I do like it. It's one where, imagine your house or your flat is on fire. It's burning. You can see the flames. The windows are shot to pieces. What would you run inside that flaming building? What possession do you treasure so much that you would run inside in order to get? It's an interesting question, isn't it? So good, in fact, I bet you're thinking about it right now. So stop. Back in the room. You can think about it later. But it's an interesting question, right? It's an interesting question. But in the light, in the light of this passage, in the light of the future moment of Jesus' return, the warning from Jesus' very own lips is, do not trade your life for worthless stuff. Do not trade your life for worthless stuff. Now look with me at verses 31 to 33. Look at me at verses 31 to 33. Jesus gives two examples of what not to do. Uh, There's one person who faces a crisis and they go back to their home to grab some valuables. And then there's another person who's in the middle of a field who goes back for the treasures before they flee. And Jesus' warning is to remember Lot's wife, a woman who in Genesis 19, 26, delayed her escape from a horrendous crisis. And it cost her her life. The power of this warning from Jesus' lips is very, very stark. It's this. I'm trying to think about how to put it, and this is the best I can get. If you think that being rescued by Jesus wouldn't be worth it, if you never got to have a life of marriage, kids, a job that... Uh, used your full potential, a first-class degree, or a life without physical or mental pain, if you say to Jesus, look, it wouldn't be worth running to you to be saved if I don't have one or more of these things, then you have neither understood the devastating danger that you are currently in, nor have you understood the awesomeness of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. So look, ask yourself this, ask yourself, are you tempted to say to Jesus, look, before I come to you, I must have, or it's not worth coming. What's the gap? What's that thing? What is that must have thing that unless you get it, unless you can keep hold of it, unless it's given to you, actually in your mind, coming to Jesus just isn't worth it. You see, for whatever that thing is, however you would have filled in the gap, well, that is the kingdom that you're really serving. If Christ is worth following at all, he's worth going all in. He's worth going all in. What do I mean by that? Sounds a bit jargony, all in. Well, I mean this. To go all in is to live a life, get this, that looks as ridiculous as building an ark 
in the middle of dry land. That's what it looks like to go all in. It, it looks like, from a, a non-kingdom perspective, as ridiculous as a church talking about church planting and revitalizing when everyone else in our country is talking about recession. Ridiculous. It looks as ridiculous as choosing a job or a place to live based on where your church is or or best opportunities to share the gospel with other people from a non-kingdom perspective. That's ridiculous. It looks like, it looks as ridiculous as devoting your precious time and none of us have enough of it. It looks like devoting your time to doing whatever it takes to keep your affections and joy and delight in Christ alive as you wait for him to return. Does your life choices right now, does your life look ridiculous to the outside world? Or does it look conventional? Well, let me conclude with this. You know, the question we may have in the light of all of this, and this is a very heavy passage, I don't pretend otherwise, it's a very heavy passage. In the light of this very stark warning, we ask the question, don't we, actually, is this fair? We ask that of judgment passages. The controversy of Jesus' teaching on it is he says, look, everyone is guilty of the same selfishness that sees our world set morally on fire. Everyone's, Everyone's guilty, everyone's responsible. And there's a painful equality about the Christian faith because Jesus says that there is no one for you to look down on, no one for you to say, I'm better than you, no one for you to say, you deserve judgment and I deserve rescue, no one. And yet we still feel like it's not fair, don't we? We still feel that God hasn't done enough. We feel that we need more time, we need more evidence, we need more strength to let go of the idols that we're struggling with. We see that image at verse 37. Look with me at verse 37 of the vultures, where Jesus is saying, look, judgment will come to all who are spiritually dead. It's a gruesome image. And doesn't it make us feel when we read that, well, yes, but Jesus, I think you could do more. Back in 2020, there was a lady called Emma Scholes. Uh, She lived in a house with six children. Two of them uh, had bedrooms on the bottom floor, and the four of them had uh, beds on the top. She was woken one night because a fire had broken out downstairs where two of the children were sleeping. And so she, she ran downstairs, she got the children, and she thrust them out of the door. As the door opened, the oxygen hit the flames, and there was a huge explosion. And she shielded the children under immense pain with her body. She got them outside onto the front garden where they were safe. Then she went back in. She went back in, not for stuff. No, no, not for stuff. She went back in for the children on the upper floor. By this time, the whole place was alight. The stairs were on fire, and she describes afterwards how she literally felt how the soles of her feet were hanging off. She got into the room where three of the children were, 
And although she was burning all over, she was able to gather them with immense strength onto the balcony and then get them to safety. But despite the pleading, and they really did plead for her not to go back, she went back in for one more who was asleep in the crib. She found the strength somehow, crawling along the floor, fighting back the smoke, picked up the little one. And though she came out with 93% burns all over her body, she rescued all six of her children. Horrendous pain, horrendous sacrifice, but she felt she needed to go back. Not for stuff, but for those she cared about. She said this afterwards, after many months of recovery and rehabilitation, she said, the fire and what we've been through has left traces all over my body. Today I take nothing for granted, and I'm grateful for every day we have together. Jesus says in verse 25, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And it's a shocking statement because it means this. He's saying, look, I know this world is morally on fire, and I know if I go back into it from the highest authority to the lowest person, they will reject me, humiliate me, and they will kill me. But he said, I'm going back anyway. And so he did. Knowing exactly the danger that he was in, he went back, he went into Jerusalem, and though he knew he would die in the most horrific way possible, he knew that it was worth it if going back meant that we could be rescued in his place. He knew that it would be worth it if it meant that he could take the punishment that we deserved so that we could be safe. His disfigurement was not in burns. No, no, no. It was in nails through the hand, nails through the feet, and a spear through his side, a disfigurement that he still has to this day. Disfigurements that say to you and I, don't take this life for granted. So let me ask you this. If he would... If he would give up his life in the face of inevitable danger to go back for you, is there something that you, you who face also an inevitable danger, is there something that you are going back for now, you are holding on to now because that thing will give you more love than he will. Surely there is nothing. Surely to do that would be utter madness. Look, the kingdom is here. The king is coming again. So come to him with your whole life before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so sorry how we cling on to things that offer and promise us peace, rest, and rescue, but in reality, they do no such thing. Help us to come to you, to let go of things that hold us back, 
Help us to leave such remarkable lives that people would call us ridiculous. Help us to live in the light that the kingdom is here, that you will one day soon return. Amen.